Hello and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, back after a small break. And today's episode is exciting because it's the first one that is going to be primarily focused on something outside of biology. And that's going to be the discussion of bioethics, which started essentially, whether she intentioned it or not, with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And this is 200 years ago. It's 200 year anniversary. Most of this is being borrowed from a magnificent lecture I heard in Minnesota by Christopher Hook. He's a professor of medical ethics and hematology. So this was phenomenal. Um, and he's at, he's at Mayo Clinic, sorry. So this was phenomenal. Um, it got me thinking so much because I had tried to read Frankenstein when I was, I think, some in sixth grade. And I definitely let it, the language and the prose get the best of me. And, you know, I think I read something else. I think I ended up reading Catch-22, which... I was really good anyway, but so I'd recommend that. But Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is great because it's a really shorter story. And it, I think when I read it just recently, just reread it again, it's just chock full of so much meaning. It's so much more powerful when you approach it from kind of the directions that that uh, Professor Hook took for it. So 200 years ago, Mary Shelley and her friends had a contest to see who could write the best horror story. One of them did write another one. One of them didn't that summer because the weather got better. But she did. She finished it. And she was influenced by what was emerging, which was essentially life science. Called it natural philosophy. People were using and trying to think of ways to study life for the first time. And it was exciting because it was also right around the time that electricity was coming out. And that there was this possibility that the two could be very connected. So... This is very, I mean, it's it's also, not only is it exciting, it was also pretty gruesome because natural scientists or natural philosophers back then had to resort to grave robbing, studying anatomy. Um, people very much tried to do this on organisms by, like, reviving them. But the main story itself is going to revolve around a very, I, I think, iconic and important theme that now I'm starting to open up and see so much more of in my own work and all kinds of other people's work, and that is the relationship of creator and created. And in this case, it's this powerful dynamic between Victor Frankenstein and his creature. So remember that it's called the creature. It's not really called a Frankenstein. So the movie version is very different. This one is much more like horrifying and scary and so much more emotional. And he's, you know, he's really this being that is just trying to find his place in the world and what he can make of it, you know, what he means. And this relationship with Victor is really all that he has. So the story kind of starts with Victor wants to, he wants to conquer death because his mother's died, his mother died. But he also has the ego to want to become a creator. He studies natural philosophy for that reason. He wants to do exactly what he ends up doing. So he learns of, you know, all these techniques and when he finally perfects it, he pulls this body together, and the creature in this case is actually like eight feet tall, huge, uh, super like this physical specimen type of thing. So he's terrified, and he runs away and has a nervous breakdown. So no responsibility. So this creature just goes off. What this poor thing does is he actually hides like in the basement or like in a like in a like a shack or something of a house, and he learns from observing the family that lives in the house. So he learns how to read, how to make sounds, what people's names are, how humans work, essentially. And remember, this is very visceral because he's looking in at something very different than what he is. So the best connection to literature that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein makes is that 
the creature learns a lot about human morals and religion and everything through reading Paradise Lost when the children and the grandfather read it in the family that he's observing. It's a very interesting commentary because when he reads it, he sees the relationship between God and Satan and their, you know, their fight. And he much more associates with Satan having been cast out, having been cast down and being kind of this bad thing. When in Paradise Lost, Milton actually wants to create the connotation that Satan is the most interesting character, that it's good to be bad. One of those quotes is something along the lines of, let us make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. And the creature kind of feels as though Satan relates more to his situation. He has this tenuous relationship with Victor. He eventually finds Victor and he tells him, you know, how everything worked. And what always stuck with me was this line, just how the creature was like, all that I've wanted to do is find you. And yet like to like to know you to this, yet I hate you so much. And it was always this back and forth throughout the story. And ultimately what happens is Victor is contracted by the creature. The creature's like, I'll leave you alone, but you have to make me a mate so that I can just be on my own. Victor thinks about it. He gets started, but he realizes that if they procreate, they could eventually eventually eliminate humans. His creation could be the undoing of humanity. So he essentially butchers up his second creation. The creature comes in and is like, what have you done? You've You've completely ruined the deal. I'll be with you on your wedding night. He ultimately kills members of Victor's friends and family to the point that Victor is now just out for revenge on him. And the novel goes on to explore kind of the futility of revenge, and it culminates with the creature eventually reconciling after Victor had died. And, you know, for those many chapters when they're chasing and fighting with each other, they just, you just think that it's just this pure hatred, but when Victor goes away essentially dies the creature goes up to him and is just like this is all that i had was you it was this terrible connection to you you were the only thing i had to this world and now i'm i'm stuck here and so with that the foundations of bioethics were essentially laid you know what is life what is death what is that transition and are we more the more than the sum of our parts and that's what the graphic for today is is essentially that life is an emergent property we are made of non-living components. Our cells are made of non-living things that when connected in a specific lattice, they become alive and we become alive. And that's, this was the first thing that addressed that idea. So more modern and medical examples can also be brought up. The first time a heart transplant, for example, went through People had to redefine death as the cessation of brain activity instead of cardiac loss. Because all of a sudden, we could put people on machines while their heart was being operated on. We could give them artificial hearts. We could transplant hearts. And now that it's more commonplace, you have to appreciate that back then when the first heart transplants happened, people lost their minds. Like, they said, no, you have completely messed with um, the natural order of things. This is a, a monster. You, you Well, I don't think they call it any an actual monster, but it's monstrous that you made this creation. So some of this fear and some of the issues were kind of in response to the technical and scientific hubris. Hubris is the Greek term to place your pride above that of the gods, to think that you are a god, even though you are a human, essentially, and that humans can control all realities. 
Now, there are many scientists that do literally think this, that the empirical value of what they make and they create, that is, that's it. That's the value of the world, is purely empirical. One of the best discussions I think that I've been recently having is that there's so little emphasis on creativity and what it takes to grow that and take advantage of that. Another thing is that empirical science, you know, some of the stuff that I do a lot of the time, it is a very short-term thing. And with what I do in cancer research, it's supposed to be short-term because you want to, we want to hurry that up. But there should be times where you think of the long-term and you have to think, what direction could this change to someday? And could I change that direction for, for so much better? You know, so thinking little long-term or little short-terms versus large long-term creativity can often lead you down that long-term path, but it has to be facilitated. So it's tough in a biology classroom, I have to admit, to get through all the content that you're supposed to get through while also having creative outlets. I tried with a lot of my classes. We do, we did like some, uh, you know, you had to create your own kind of presentation, your own activities, things like that. You were responsible. You could even make up a disease, for example. So for micro, I, I thought it was actually a pretty good application, but I, we never sadly got to get into bioethics and stuff like this. So on this scientific hubris, you know, this started coming out a few decades a lot when people were starting to get their hands on science. One example is one of the engineers behind uh, in, vitro, in vitro fertilization. And the quote was, is God in control or are we? I found that we are. It was us. You know, <laughs> there's, there's so much, you have to unpack so much ego with many scientists that it's very difficult to see some of the positives of what they had done, lo and behold, ignoring how they act. And that's tough. And I think you have to, I think as scientists, we have to admit that a lot of our own kind don't do us any favors when it comes to how we come across to the public. So probably a more contemporary example of creator created and some of the issues behind them is the advent of AI. For example, now we have to decide, you know, what is human? What is the nature of humanity, soul or material? are humans essentially in the transhumanist view, which is, uh, we, you know, medicine is medicine there to heal or is it fulfillment for fulfillment and re-engineering of the scientists? Are the scientists doing this because they want to create something or are we doing it to heal people? I think there are people on both sides of things and I think maybe even a mix of the two is a perfect mix. I don't know though. But a lot of people can even have this idea that you know, humanity even in and of itself isn't that special because we're just meat capable of engineering a better way. And a lot of people that are behind this kind of idea are those that, you know, would like to create something, a digital will, a free will, for example, an AI that can truly think, which would be, uh, you know, a whole nother conversation. That would actually, it would be very interesting someday when we have true AI, something that can make rationalized, measured, and creative decisions where they fall in biology, given that study of life. And I don't know if you start having a biology section on non-human uh, centralized uh, higher, higher order life. I don't know. It's a good idea to think about, I guess. But even recently, a Chinese scientist was supposedly arrested for trying to re-engineer uh, AIDS resistance, or sorry, HIV resistance into a pair of twins because their mother was HIV positive, I think. Don't quote me on that article. Um, 
so he essentially just, you know, CRISPR is something where we can change DNA and make something like this happen. We really am still, we are trying to get a hold in the technology enough so that we can decide, is this something we need to do? So I actually have some CRISPR episode content that I want to get into, but it's still, it's still, a you know, something to really think about where this created, you know, what you're creating has a lot of meaning and you have to take that into account before you make, you know, something quite as, quite as crazy. And I mean, we have been doing this for a while, uh, recombinant DNA, crops that are different, things like that. We always have to have this idea of, you know, where, where we stand with what we're doing and what are the consequences of it. So I'll kind of end on a quote from Victor Frankenstein and albeit remember his ego is pretty big and he did not know what he was doing. So you can always take it with a grain of salt, but, and essentially it draws again from Paradise Lost. Like the archangel that wanted omnipotence, I failed and I'm cast to eternal hell. All the while, he doesn't really think of what his creation has been put through, what the creature has been put through. The creature loves and you find out that it has this personality and it wants to love, it wants to learn, it just wants to be accepted. And it's cast aside every time it encounters a human. So it's no wonder that he kills humans like half the time he meets them. But, you know, it's definitely something I'd recommend if you want to look at biology or look just at literature from the perspective of creator created and life itself. Because it really gives this fast. I mean, the creature himself is one of my favorite characters in literature. He's just, you you just want to hear so much more from him and what it's, what it's like to be something that doesn't exist, you know, like an idea like that. So credit to Mary Shelley for writing something I, you know, I, I thought was amazing and I sped through it and I'm not, I'm actually a pretty slow reader, but, um, one of the last things that always stuck with me too, one of the, probably the greatest issue of creation that we've ran into in our time was, uh, was the atomic, the atomic bomb essentially. And there's a famous quote from Oppenheimer that I'll play for you now, kind of goes over how everybody felt when the first atomic bomb was tested and they saw that, you know, this this will change humanity forever. You know, the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I think having grown up in the shadow um, and knowing that nuclear weapons exist throughout our lifetimes, at least most of our lifetimes, it's hard. It's probably hard to see what they saw that day and like to understand that the world would never be the same. Um, Oppenheimer kind of, he kind of uh, summarizes the scientist archetype I was trying to get across sometimes and how that can change. There you heard him. And he's obviously still has so many doubts as to what he had created, what they had created. Was this something that would be the end of humanity? 
is what Victor thought his creation was, especially if he made him a mate, right? Um, but there's a quote that relates to how Oppenheimer transitioned, and that is, good without wisdom always accomplishes evil. And Oppenheimer would later not refute what he said there, but essentially say that if we hadn't done it, somebody else would have. We had to do what we had to do. So it's definitely something to think about. And you can kind of, you know, sometimes I imagine a world where we didn't figure out atomic weapons. I wonder what that would be like. Maybe, I mean, maybe things would be worse. I don't know. Maybe they'd be better, obviously. I don't know. So definitely something to think about. Ask yourself again, not only what life is, but what is something, you know, when we eventually someday create life or extend it, you know, what what we're doing there, what are you creating and how are you making sure that it's something that, I guess, I don't know, is going to be fulfilling, objectively good. It's definitely a tough call in all respects. So I'll leave you with that. Again, thanks for listening. I think this was a shorter episode, so it's always good. Scouts asleep as always, so... I'm sure she wasn't terribly interested, but hopefully you were. Um, I'm going to set up an email in the description, I think, so that I can like get any feedback, questions, see what direction you all want me to take on anything. Um, otherwise, I will try and address like creativity and like intuition versus deduction a little more. I think it's very important for students and anybody to understand that there are different ways of thinking about problems and that crazy dreams and crazy ideas often turn out to be the best possible things. In some cases, not so much. So be careful when, yeah, when you think about things like these. And, uh, you know, as a scientist, I, I try to keep all this in mind too. But it's very exciting. So yeah, and also read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein if you get a chance. It's honestly just a great read, great characters. So awesome. All right, have a good night and thanks again for listening. Bye.